deception, madness, love, hate, genius, denial, passion, insanity. The fabric of our emotions is fragile. The lines get blurred sometimes. Would you know if you crossed it? Would you even care? Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where each month we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. In addition to a general discussion, we will view it through the lens of a particular theme. It is inevitable with all good literature. One can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and life. In the second episode, we will examine some ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. We want to include you in our discussions, so please go to our Twitter account. The handle is at bookclubjuxtas. That's at B-O-O-K-C-L-U-B-J-U-X-T-A-S. Or our Facebook page is Book Club Juxtapositions. When you're responding, remember our motto is to encourage and inspire, don't spit fire. So grab your glass of wine and let's juxtapose. Cheers, Tracy. What's in this month's episodes? In this month's episodes, we will examine the theme of obsession in Edgar Allan Poe's undeniably iconic short horror stories, The Telltale Heart and The Cask of Amontillado. Amontillado. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm going to channel some inner Sean and Gus here from Psych, but I have heard Amontillado and Amontillado. Just saying. <laughs> I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter and former educator. And I'm Kimberly Andy, travel writer, winemaker, former educator and creator of the blog, Lily Pats of Curiosity. The Telltale Heart is the story of a caretaker who becomes infatuated with his charge's eye, the eye of a vulture. His charge is merely a host for that cursed eye and really is irrelevant. The eye must be destroyed. This disturbingly awesome narrative is a window into the mind of a narrator's obsession, an obsession so powerful that murder is the only release. But why is it such an obsession? Well, it's this, you know... It's an irresistible and constant impulse. It doesn't go away. It's not rational. It just, no matter how the narrator is going to try to make this rational, it's obsession. So whatever the target to the eye of the beholder, it is more important than air. By definition, it's not rational, but it doesn't make it any less real in life and in literature. That explains it, too. With Edgar Allan Poe, he's known for writing about obsessive obsession, madness, love, etc. So in the mind of a madman, it's very real. The narrator of the Telltale Heart is a caretaker for an elderly man. He loves him. He just hates his eye. It's not, again, it's not that kind of, well, of course, it's, you know, this is a thing for him. Like, it's a real thing that really exists. He carefully plots and plans the removal of the eye. His nightly ritual is to let the light fall in the eye at midnight. He relishes the fear the old man feels, even though he tries to just brush it off as, you know, this thing like, I've got to go pick up milk. Oh, and I also have to go, you know, kill my charge and and remove his eye and bury him under the floorboards. And obsessively checks it out every single night at the same time, over and over and over. Yep, it's the plan. Got to stick to the plan. (laughs) He's nothing if not motivated. Um, this this obsession with this motivation, but I would argue that it's not about the eye at all. You know, the narrator starts out in this past tense where he's telling us this. So we can imagine that, you know, he's somewhere and he's just rationally recounting, 
you know, I am then the day I went to the movies and oh, by the way, I did this also. But I would argue that it's not about the eye at all. The narrator's obsessed with proving that he's not insane. So he's telling himself, I think, as well as telling us that he is not insane, that he's not. That's, you know, why are you saying this? Like, would a crazy person be able to do all of this? Right. Like when he starts out, you know, the story with mad, mad. I'm not mad. Why do you say I'm mad? Right. So again, is he, it's, it's that insecurity, you know, constant, you know, we, cause we see him in the, in the story, he's like constantly bragging, like, look what I did. And definitely when we're looking at the Cascamontiado, like that's over and over again, you know, bragging about this. And, you know, you know, typically not to make generalizations here, but if you do have, meet braggers in your life, they do, I think it's a lot about their own insecurities. So I, I think he's, he's obsessing with letting us know he's not crazy and also letting himself know that he's not crazy. Is he protesting too much? Yeah, I definitely think so. But, you know, I, I think, again, it goes back to that braggy idea. Because here he is, he's murdered, he's getting away with it. And at that point, he places the chair, at the very end of the story, the police are there. And he places the chair right on top of the dead body, you know, and in one way of saying, like, look at this, I got away with this, ha ha ha. But I think also, like, it's an element of self-sabotage. Like, he's got that contrast. So we see that contrast in, you know, he's got the contrast of the sane versus the insane and trying to convince himself. But we also see this contrast of, I love the old man, I just hated his eye. So, like, again, like, that's a thing that really exists, that you can remove yourself from this idea of, you know, separating a body part from the rest of the individual <laughs> it'd be like me saying you know oh, no. Kimberly I absolutely love you but you know that toenail of yours that cursed toenail that vulture toenail has got to go and I'm really sorry but since you're attached to it it, it you gotta go I'll put on shoes <laughs> can we compromise I'll put on shoes you're still there please don't put me still under there the floor still there kicking at me <laughs> watch where she has her chair guy <laughs> So, yeah, so I think, again, we see that, like, at the end of the story, the narrator's far more concerned that the police are mocking him than he is about the fact that, you know, there's a rotting, rotting corpse under him that eventually is going to smell, even if he gets away with it temporarily. It's just not a good murder plan. He does not have a good murder plan. <laughs> so, so you're saying that Poe is definitely showing you what not to do when committing murder? <laughs> yeah, that's, that could be the title of it, How Not to Murder Someone. <laughs> How to Get Away with How murder. to Get Away with It. Although I would tell you that the Cascamontiado, like, his is a solid plan. His I is mean, absolutely a solid plan. Like that, you know, I hate to say that, it's, no one should die. Please don't misunderstand me. But, like, he's definitely got a better plan. And I would argue that the narrator in The Total Heart is is definitely mad. But I would argue the narrator in the Castle Montiato, he's obsessed with revenge, but I don't I don't know that he's mad. I don't know They're both I, premeditated. Both They're premeditated. Both pretty messed up. But is it because it takes away a physical, like just an obsessive with one body part instead of he's kinda of getting revenge for instead of revenge on an eye that shines at him every night, he's getting revenge on somebody that he that he believes did him wrong. Right. I think we can relate. We can relate to revenge. We can't relate to, you know, this poor old man that he's taking care of that has, you know, he's, he can't take care of himself. He's, you know, he, he needs him. Right. And yet he's the, you know, the ultimate victim. You could kind of look at it the flip side too, like, you know, get more upset with him because, you know, hey, buddy, you could have gone in there and put a patch on his eye. 
if it really bothered you that much. So you don't get off by <laughs> here's killing some coping it. technique. Right. Here's some coping technique. Have some deep breathing. Right. We, I, guess, I guess we could have had a you know a mediation session though between Monsar and Fortunato as well. So I feel crazy. When you show me your eye, so right. eye statements. Use your eye statements, <laughs> not the eye statements. Get it? Your eye. <laughs> uh, okay. So, what, does does the madness drive the obsession, or does the obsession drive the madness? What do you think? Well, I think it depends on the level of obsession. So that madness um, driving that level of obsession. So I think that there's different levels of the obsession. So, but for example, you could be obsessed and it could drive you mad if you leave your, you know, you, you back out of your driveway and how many times have we left and we thought that we left the garage door open. Never. And I never have done that. No, I've ever, never, ever, never heard ever. you do that. You're, you're an anomaly. But, um, <laughs> but if you, you know, you turn around, you drive back around the block and you're like, oh, yep, that's down. That's one level of obsession that we can relate to. A different level of obsession is driving around the block, putting the garage door up just to prove that you came that you were checking to okay, see if it I was probably up. don't need your ideas because uh, <laughs> I've never ever done that either. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And then putting it down. You know, if you did that just to prove that that gave you a reason to go back, then that's a whole different level of obsession. So, but it, I think, could, but it could be up. I'm saying it just could be up. It could be. Yeah. But if you go drive around the corner and it's not up, but you put it up just to prove that it could have been up. Okay. Again, don't <laughs> need your help on these things. All right, here's a question for you. Isn't I've always assumed, and I think most people always assume, that the narrator's a man, but we don't really know that. I I find this story endlessly fascinating when you look at it like maybe it's a woman because to me that's just so much more disturbing. And really, statistically, caretakers tend to be female. I mean, she'd have to be pretty tough. We'd have to be looking at Xena maybe because she's able to, you know, chop up the body in little pieces. You don't have to be Xena to chop up a little old frail man. <laughs> okay, now you're scaring me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, we just, everyone always assumes that this behavior is male. And I don't know. I just think a retelling of the story as a female is, is kind of long overdue. Oh, I think that would be phenomenal to do but i think that the reason why we all assume that it's a, a male narrator is because it is poe and it is using a lot of i statements there we go again and <laughs> and so it is from first person point of view like that so you believe that it is poe telling those stories and and poe is known to be you know a, a madman himself and whether he was mad or he had other you know health issues or other things that he dealt with personally in his life we can talk about the history of poe and and what 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 happened in poe's life and how is that brought out in his writing and you know is that fair to say that what he lived through in his life he brought out in his writing so therefore he was technically mad himself or was he bringing out things and hurt and pain in his life that came across this way that um that you know he wouldn't physically go out and commit these murders like he did but maybe he felt you know in his writing you know that that's not the connection but the way he felt that led up to these kind of situations that he writes about you know the history of poe Right. So, you know, obviously he, he he lost all these prominent females in his life to tuberculosis. So we do have that element of them like choking on their own blood, dying before their time. So especially with these two stories, you see this, you know, 
where, especially like if you look at the Casca Montiato and, you know, he's being buried alive, he's not getting oxygen, you know, the Telltale Heart again, dying before their time. So I do, I see, I, we see the influence, you know, I think both of us are, are wary of, you know, well, this author must be crazy because this author used this. I, I think there are just moments, snapshots, maybe um, feelings that you apply to other things, you know, you may be obsessed about winemaking and then you can apply it to something right. else. Well, there are some things that I do think that come out from an actual author's um, personality. There's times that I've written things that you said, yeah, I could really hear you in that. And I'm like, you did? Because I really didn't think it was me. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I could really hear you in that. But um, at the same time, I'm very defensive of authors like um, Stephen King. People say, oh, he's crazy. Oh, he's, yeah. No, that's just, those are the stories that he wrote. And I, I believe that um, even after, you know, reading on writing that he, he found a niche, he found something that worked and he found that he was really good at it and he's run with it and he's become very successful with it. And Stephen King, I, I, I love you. Yeah, we're both huge <laughs> Stephen King fans. But I, I think that um, I think that what does come out in both the stories, and if we look at the comparison between both of them, yeah, in the cask of Amontillado, that oxygen is slowly, slowly, slowly being taken from them step by step as they go down into the, the catacombs. And then um, same thing with Telltale Heart is every night at midnight, every night over and over and over. And when do we feel most depressed or anxious or scared or sad about something that we don't have control over at night when you're up thinking about it or you can't get to sleep. So I think that those kinds of things draw in from his personal life and then how he was, um, how he had to deal with it and how that affected his life. So brick after brick in the cask of Amontillado, night after night, that light shining, something that he wanted to have control over that he didn't have control over. So in that realm, I do think that it does bring that in. And that's why I, I thought I, that was he was the narrator. So I think, too, like, it maybe then what you're saying is that the obsession is really with control. And that is definitely something we can all relate to. Yeah. I, one thing I would just go back to saying with the Stephen King thing or with all writing and writers is that I think sometimes the best we, thing we can do as writers is get out of the way and just, you know, let the just story. Just allow yourself to write. Let, yeah, so just get out of the way and just let the story be told. And as readers, remember that that was, a, you know, when you're reading something and it comes across a little like, wow, not always coming from that. What, that doesn't mean that that author has those tendencies and that's who they are in their life. It's a character that comes out and, and it comes through. Like them. more channeling them. Than, yeah, more channeling than living them. it. Definitely more channeling it. So Right. I, I think Poe, though, is such a fantastic writer because oh, he's really? got this flow and, and his writing. I mean, this is why I think it stands the test of time because the writing itself is almost another character because of the way, you know, he's, he's building tension, releasing tension, building tension, just like subverting. a great song. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like it's written song. like a song, just like a song. I mean, the beat, the beat, the heartbeat, everything goes up, up, up. And it just runs just like a heartbeat and it flows just like that. So it's easy to read. Almost like the Shakespearean attention. iambic pentameter, except yes, without that, without the horse hoofs. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, I think that that is another thing to go back to. Why did this um, piece of writing stand the test of time? I think that it's because it is something like a song that you can remember from how far back. There's many songs that you can remember, and it's because of the beat that flows you through that, and it's telling the story with an underlying beat that's keeping us engaged the whole time. So. Absolutely, he's able to kind of just create that, like what we all fear, through that lens, and that's just beautiful. 
regardless of what he's writing about. <laughs> regardless of what he's writing about. <laughs> um, and, yes. you know, again, going back to Edgar Allan Poe's life, and I'm not sure if you've looked into this or not, but I would just highly encourage any of the listeners to look into the different theories about his death because that's going to, I'm going to find that endlessly fascinating. But one of the theories about his death was that um, he was mistaken for a homeless person and brought to vote over and over again because it was a voting day and unfortunately there was some corruption. But so one year for Halloween, I went as Edgar Allan Poe. Which was a brilliant costume, by the way. <laughs> Nobody got it, I got to say. But I was decked out as Poe and I had these voting stickers all over me. I voted today, I voted today. But again, I, I find myself quite humorous, but I'm not sure translated. You even had a raven on your shoulder. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, okay, audience, we want to hear from you. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts and, and engage with, with you in a lively discussion online. You can check us out on our social media Twitter account, at Book Club Juxtas, or our Facebook account, Book Club Juxtapositions, where we'd love to read, engage, and then uh, perhaps share on our next episode some of the highlights. Excellent. And in our next episode, we want you to uh, prep and start imagining. Imagine that it's Mardi Gras. You're liquored up and decked out in some motley cosplay. Yes, like always, you. Always. Every summer at Comic-Con. Um, you run into a buddy. They need your help to judge some fine amontillado. I still can't not say it that way. <laughs> Who are you to say no to a friend, especially when he's complimenting you? Little do you know that you only have hours left to live. So our next episode, The Cask of Amontillado. And then next month's books, we're going to talk about a great book. One of my absolute favorites. It's about um, the 1920s Russian uh, history, and that is The Gentleman in Moscow. We're going to compare that with Fahrenheit 451, where we'll examine the themes of fate versus free will. Well, thank you so much, Chaya, for spending your time with us. We really appreciate it. Cheers. Happy reading. <laughs>